Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to look at chapter 21 and chapter 22 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, that you're our dad, you're our Abba Father. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that you show in our lives and even through the painful experiences, through our own failure and the failures of others and sin, Lord, you're wanting to use those things in our lives to teach us, to bring us to a greater knowledge of you, to bring us to a greater depth of worship. And we acknowledge our dependency upon you. Lord, we need you in our lives. We need your word. We need your Holy Spirit. Would you bless your people? Would you cause your face to shine upon them? In Jesus' name, amen. Painful path to praise. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. These two chapters that we're going to look at are very ugly. We find a new side of King David. And quite honestly, I'm thankful for it because so far in this story, in this narrative, David's batting 100%. Everything that we see, he's responding in a godly way. If Saul's trying to kill him, he doesn't return evil for evil. If his brother is ridiculing him, he responds appropriately. But now that the pressure's on, Saul is trying to kill him, David cracks under the pressure. He resorts to lying. He resorts to acting out of the fear of man. And the reason I'm thankful for it is God shows us his people, warts and all. He shows us his people, struggles and all. As much as we don't want to admit it, we crack under the pressure, don't we? The pressure comes in our lives. We do things that we didn't want to do. We lie. We act out out of fear. And what's amazing about this is if you were just to read 1 Samuel 21 and 22, I think you would miss the heart of what's going on because there's four psalms that David writes out of this experience that he has. And what's happening in this experience, through his own failure and the failure of Saul, he comes to a greater understanding of who God is. That's where we live. That's our story. A lot of times, the pathway to praise is not a beautiful one. It's one of our failure and the failures of others, but if we have an open and teachable heart, God meets us in that place, and we come to understand who he is, his mercy and grace in a greater way. So let's look in verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? David literally is fleeing for his life. He comes to the priest. He comes to the city of priests. So far, David has gone to Samuel. He's gone to Jonathan. Now he goes to the priest. The priest Ahimelech says, something's not right here. You're alone. Why, why are you alone? You're always traveling together with your men. David, at this point, was a captain of his own group of soldiers. In verse 2, so David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Is this the truth? Is he sent out? On Saul's business? Is this a secret service CIA mission? Absolutely not. In fact, he's running for his life from King Saul. Why did he lie? 
He could have been lying with the intention to try to protect Ahimelech. If Ahimelech helps him and Saul comes and says, why did you help my enemy? Well, I didn't know anything about it. A lie is never justified. A lot of times that's how we get hooked into a lie. We think, well, if I tell the truth, there's going to be too much cost to the truth. So I'm going to go ahead and lie. And we'll find as we read this story this morning that lies grow legs. Lies never stay in the same place. We tell one lie, we've got to tell another lie and another lie. There's giant repercussions because of these lies. It's understandable where David would get to this place. He's afraid. He's not focused on the Lord, so he resorts to lying. In verse 3, now therefore, what have you, what have you on, on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. David didn't have time to make preparation to flee from Saul. He doesn't have anything to eat. So he says, do you have some bread that you could give me? I'll take whatever you have on hand. And the priest answered David and said, there is no communion bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young people have at least kept themselves from women. This bread was set aside just for the priests to be able to eat. It was presented to the Lord, then the priests could eat it and be able to, to enjoy it. The priest is going to share this with David, and in fact, Jesus uses this to teach the priests in the New Testament. In three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus refers to this event. Because the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests at Jesus' time were all about the regulations of the law, the traditions of the law, and they missed the main point, which was love and human need. So Jesus said that Ahimelech gets it right. He compliments Ahimelech on giving David the food because love and human need is always more important than the regulations of the law, than the traditions of the law. And sometimes I think that we can get in that place. It's never intended to be a religion. It's always intended to be a relationship with Christ. Amen? Amen. But sometimes we get caught up into traditions. There are even extra-biblical commands, and there's a need right in front of us. It's a a God appointment, a God-brought need, and we say, well, I can't meet that need because it's violating one of my traditions, because it would mean that they would have to have the bread that was intended for the priest. Sometimes we just need to simplify. It's about loving God and loving people. That's what God's will is, and that's what God's intent is for us to do. Verse 5, Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. There's no men with David. My men are off doing my my secret business, and we've been kept from women for three days. We haven't been around our wives for three days, so it's okay for us to be able to have this bread. Do you see how the lie perpetuates? See how the lie grows? In verse 6, So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which has been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. This is Panera Bread, folks. This is what happens at Panera Bread every day, right? Some of the bread doesn't sell. Some of the bagels doesn't sell. You can't sell stale bread. And so 
What do they do? A lot of times they give it away. We are partnered with Mercy's Gate, which is right across the street from, from the church, and Panera Bread gives a lot of their, their unused bread to, to the community. And this is what the priest does. It's time for the fresh bread. It's time for the hot bread. And so the, the, the bread that was cold is what he was able to give to David and what he thought to be David's men. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Keep this guy in your mind because he's going to become very important in the next chapter. Doeg means fearful, and he will put fear into the hearts of men. He's an Edomite, which is a descendant of Esau. His role was he was in charge of all of the herdsmen who took care of Saul's sheep. In verse 8, And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here... On hand a spear or a sword, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. What's interesting as we look at David is when he faced Goliath, he wasn't trusting in a weapon. In fact, he was offered Saul's armor, and he said, I can't take it because I haven't proven it. He was trusting in the Lord as he went against Goliath. But at this point, he's looking for a weapon because his eyes are off the Lord. He's lied, he's moving into a place of fear. I need a sword, I need a weapon. We know that we're starting to spin out of control when we begin to lie and we begin to look to our own resources. What weapon can I bring to the table? What answer do I have for this particular situation? And again, I'm thankful for this, as odd as that sounds, because if David never made any mistakes, he'd be really hard to relate to. And what we find with scripture is they're not perfect people, but they're people who love God and were willing to follow God, meet with God in the midst of their failure and their sin. So verse 9, so the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it, give it to me. We know the temple is not built till Solomon, David's son. This is the time of the tabernacle. At the tabernacle, they have in safekeeping Goliath's sword, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Here it is with the priests wrapped up in this cloth. And David says, okay, I'll, I'll use it. There's no other sword like it. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Interesting place for David to go. He goes to Philistine territory. Gath is a Philistine city. Achish is a Philistine king. He comes walking into a Philistine city with Goliath's sword, their greatest champion of all time. Do you think they're going to recognize David? Absolutely. The sword wasn't proportionate to David's body. It was built for a man who was nine feet, six inches tall. It's going to get David in trouble. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one, did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? Really? This song made it all the way to Philistine territory? This was the number one hit not only in Israel, but also in Gath. People were playing it on Pandora and Spotify. 
They were selling it on iTunes. It was, it was the rage. David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. For David, I think he's really getting sick of this song. He's really getting tired of this song. Why? Because every time it gets brought up, somebody tries to kill him. When Saul hears this song, he gets jealous. He tries to kill, kill David. Now here he comes, going into Philistine territory, thinking this is the one place that Saul's not going to find me, that Saul's not going to come into this territory. And now they recognize him, and they begin to reference this song and are looking at him with those eyes of, we're going to do you in. What happens is really interesting in verse 12. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. It hit his heart. He realized he's in trouble. He realized the way that these guys were, were looking at him, that they were going to do David in. Why wouldn't they? He killed Goliath, and his heart becomes very much afraid. David's just like us. He had the same struggles, the same challenges, just like we do. In verse 13, so he changed his behavior before, before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the door of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. How do I get out of this situation? I'm going to act like a madman. Begins to scratch the door like a crazy dog and just allows the saliva to flow down onto his beard. From what I hear, it's no shave November. Is that true? Some guys are like, yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. I could do no shave November, but it really wouldn't make a difference. So I shave once a week whether I need it or not, right? But David's apparently got a big old beard and he's just got the saliva that is coming down in his beard to try to get out of this situation. Fear's got a hold of him and he's acting out of fear. In verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Achish is saying, the loony bin's full. We don't need another crazy guy. This guy clearly has lost his mind. The whole thing with Saul has really gotten to him. So we'll just go ahead and let him go. Have you ever done things out of fear that you look back and you regret? I was afraid, so I lied. I didn't tell the truth. I, I was afraid, so I acted in this way. And, and I'm ashamed of acting out of fear and instead of faith. And when we look at the outside perspective, we don't see praise. We don't see worship. We don't see David learning about God. But the outward does not always give the full picture. The outward does not always reflect what is taking place on the inward. There's two psalms, two songs that David wrote directly out of this experience with Gath. And they're beautiful and they're powerful psalms of praise. And I want to read a couple sections. And if you've got a pen or on your device, your phone, your, your iPad, write down these two psalms. Psalms 56 and Psalms 34. This is Psalms 56, verses 3 and 4. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I've put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? When you're reading the Psalms, you want to look at the introduction of the Psalm. There'll be the number of the Psalm, and right underneath that will be this fine print where it introduces the Psalm. And Psalms 56 tells us that it was written while David was with the Philistines of, of Gath. He comes to this great understanding, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. 
Whenever I'm afraid, I will praise you. And so there was a deep work that God was doing in his heart through this experience with this Philistine king. You're looking around at other believers and you think that they're losing it and the temptation is to write them off just like Achish wrote off David, but there's something that's happening in their heart. They're learning, they're reflecting. I shouldn't have acted in fear. I shouldn't have lied. I shouldn't have acted like, like a madman. Maybe this week you had a tendency to kind of look at your spouse and go, she's a mad woman. She's a madman. You know, when are they gonna get it together? When are they gonna start acting like this? Stop acting like this. But inside their heart, they're wrestling with their own sin. They were wrestling with their own failure. They were reflecting upon God. They were finding God in that situation. There was fruit that was coming out of it. They were saying, I'm not gonna act that way again. When I'm afraid, I am gonna trust in the Lord. Let's be honest, fruit doesn't often come through a real beautiful, smooth path. It's a painful path. Worship a lot of times is not birthed out of a real pretty path. It's birthed out of pain. And that's what took place in, in David's life. Or you might be writing yourself off. You might be saying, I failed this week. I'm all cracked up. I cracked up underneath the pressure. I lost it. I lost my temper. I said some words that I, I, I shouldn't have said. I treated people in a way that doesn't, doesn't glorify the Lord. Well, God's still with you. He's wanting to teach you in the midst of, of those failures. Don't write yourself off. God hasn't left you. Think about his, his mercy. What's interesting about these psalms, if, as you study them, is David begins these psalms with, God, be merciful to me. I gotta tell you, I'm cracked up. Under pressure, I crack up. I cracked up this week. I'm sure you probably are, are cracked up. You know, under pressure, you, you do things that you didn't wanna do, and those are the places that God wants to meet us. Psalms 34 is the second psalm from this experience. In verse one, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He learned to praise God even when it was difficult, even when his life was on the line, even when he was feeling pressured by the Philistines. In Psalms 34, verse four, he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my fears. From 1 Samuel 21, it doesn't look like David's seeking the Lord. But then when we look deeper into the Psalms, in these experiences, he's seeking the Lord. How do you have God deliver you from your fears? You've got to be afraid. You've got to not handle fear appropriately sometimes, and then hopefully we get to a place where we're seeking God in our fears and he delivers us. Let's go into chapter 22. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. He's living in a cave, the cave of Adullam. His family comes to him once they hear that David is there. That's what we should be doing for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know someone's in a dark season, a time of isolation, you go to them. David's family did that for him. How would it be to live in a cave? Discouraging, depressing, isolating, painful, and in this cave dwelling, once again, David comes to a greater level of praise in his life. There's two psalms that are written out of this experience of dwelling in the cave. This is Psalms 57. I'll read it to you. Write it down, Psalms 57. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above the earth. 
They've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dug a pit before me into the, into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. Awake lute and harp. I will awake the dawn. Can you picture David in this cave looking out the front of the cave and saying, I'm going to choose to praise God. I'm going to awake the dawn. I'm going to awake the sun. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Are you in a cave experience? Do you feel isolated? Are you discouraged, possibly depressed? God's with you, just like he's with us in our failures. And in fact, he allows us, he leads us, he places us in cave seasons of our lives. He does the greatest work in our souls, if we'll allow it, in the cave experiences. I would think that Psalms 57 was written by David when everything's easy. When he's hanging out in Bethlehem with the sheep, it's a warm summer night, he's underneath the stars, he's saying, God be exalted. But that's not when it was written. It was written in the cave. You can probably look back on your life and some of your greatest understandings of who God is have come out of the cave experiences. We would never want to do it again. We wouldn't go back, but that's when we've learned who God is. It's the painful path to praise. There's another psalm, Psalms 147. This is what David sings to the Lord in the midst of this cave. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I've walked, they've secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there's none who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Ever feel that way? I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Intend unto my cry, for I have been brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Crying out to the Lord. God work, God deliver. My spirit is overwhelmed within me. Let's see what takes place next in this cave in verse two. And everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontent gathered to him. So he came the captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. The three Ds, distress, debt, and discontentment, decided we're gonna go out and be with David, this renegade leader. And this becomes David's new army. Not who you would normally choose to be your warriors. Let's take all of those that are just blown up in life, that have no other options, and we'll form them to be the new warriors. As we'll study the story in First and Second Samuel, these men become valiant men. They become great warriors. Their exploits are going to be recorded for us in scripture. As they hung out with a godly man, As they hung out with a man who God used to kill giants, they became giant killers themselves. How does this point to Jesus Christ? Jesus is the greater than David, the king of kings. What oftentimes brings us to the feet of Jesus Christ? It's our debt, it's our distress, it's our discontentment. Think about your own testimony. What brought you to the point of salvation? Probably a deep emptiness inside of you that said, there has to be more than this. And it brought you to the King of Kings of Jesus Christ. I know that was true in my life. What causes me to get on my knees today? 
what causes me to seek the Lord, what causes me to say, I want to be near to my king, it's the distress in my life. I wish it was the blessings in my life. Sometimes it is, but I pray with a lot more intensity when there's distress, when there's debt, when there's discontentment. It's God's way of bringing us unto himself. Maybe you're in the midst of tons of financial debt, student loans, had no idea that school would cost that much and it would take so long to be able to pay off. Some student loans are more than mortgages. Isn't that crazy, right? You know, my parents' first house that they bought, you can get a semester of college now for what they paid for their first house. Young people, you're like, man, I'm 21 years old and I'm already greatly in debt. Maybe your health failed and you couldn't work and there's debt because of that. You got laid off and you haven't been able to find another job. Maybe there was a season of irresponsibility. Visa sent you this nice card, MasterCard. They put it in this nice package and they promised some rewards that were going to be given back to you and just kept sliding and sliding and slipping and sliding and the debt's gotten racked up and now the interest rate is 21%. God wants to meet you in that place. He wants you to come in that place of, of debt. Maybe discontentment. You're I'm just so discontent. I'm so dissatisfied in life. There's got to be more. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Walk with Christ. And the amazing thing is, is as we spend time with Christ, he changes us, doesn't he? He transforms us. Just like these men were changed as they spent time with David, we're changed as we spend time with Jesus. He truly wants you to come in the midst of the three Ds. And you can probably add more Ds onto that saying, I've got some deeds that don't fit into this. Well, God is using those trials in our lives to bring us to Christ. In verse 3, Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. Why does David go to Moab? I think there's a good reason, possibly. His grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabitess. So he has a Moabite in his, his family. Ruth married Boaz. So he goes to Moab for refuge. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all of the time of David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet of Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Interesting that God sends the prophet to David, says, David, you shouldn't be here in Moab. You should be in Judah. Judah was in close proximity to Saul. From physical perspective, it doesn't seem like the logical place to go, but God wants him in Judah. Did you know the word Judah means praise? We're going to go somewhere for refuge. If you're in a real trying, soul-crushing time, you will flee somewhere to refuge. Is it the place of praise? I remember this summer as a family, we went to Waterworld in North Denver, and there was a family that was in front of us in line. The mom and dad, they had four kids, just like us, we've got four kids, and their kids were probably age 15 to 5, and they were having a fun day at, at Waterworld, and I noticed on the back of mom's legs, you couldn't miss it, that she had been cutting herself with a razor blade, just countless scars up and down uh, her calves. Why? Why is she doing that? Because of the pain in her life. And she needed a refuge. And she's not going to the refuge of Jesus Christ 
And so she's cutting herself in some way to feel something and express pain. Not a teenager, middle-aged woman with four children with her husband, cutting herself because of the pain that she feels. There's no doubt that some of you this morning are in that same place, even as a child of God. You're cutting yourself. You're physically making yourself bleed because of the pain that you feel. And there's a much greater refuge to go to, and that's Jesus Christ. Go to the refuge of praise. Go to the place of crying out to God in the midst of that pain. God, be, be merciful. God, be my refuge. Why do people go to drugs? Why do people go to, to alcohol in the midst of their pain? They're looking for a refuge. And it promises some momentary relief, but then what does it provide? Greater bondage. It's got to be a little bit more. It's got to be a little bit more. Maybe your refuge is more money. You think, if I can just have a little bit more money, if I can get to that place, I'll finally have security. No, there's no security apart from Jesus Christ. It's not a refuge compared, compared to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Why do people run into sexual relationships and run into sexual sin at full speed? and put themselves out there in such a, a reckless way. Whether you're a high school student or you're 45 or 55, it's because ultimately they're looking for a refuge. They're looking to a person instead of looking to the Lord. And God's message to you this morning might be, you need to go to Judah. You need to go to the place of praise. You need to go to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. David responds in verse six, and he does go back to Judah. And Saul hears of it. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all of his servants standing about him. Every time we see Saul now, he's got his spear. He's just ready to go. He's like, make my day, make my day. come on. I'm an angry man. I'm just ready to throw my spear. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a terrible way to live, isn't it? If you're going through your life with your spear, saying, I'm just ready to pin people to the wall. I'm ready for someone to, to make me mad and cross me. God would want to set us free. He'd want to soften our hearts and change our hearts. In verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains over thousands and captains over hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my soul has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Saul continues to feel like he's a victim in this story, wanting people to feel sorry for him. Why are you with David? Interesting how we can twist things, that we can be the person that's wrong. We can even be the person that's bringing such violence, but feeling sorry for ourselves, feeling like we're the victim in all of this. Doag shows back up. Then answered Doag, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Then he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I saw David get help from Ahimelech the priest. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. So Saul's confronting Ahimelech. 
Then Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you've given him bread and the sword and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Woo! That's some boldness. Way to go, Ahimelech. Saying, you know what? You got a good guy in David. David's a man. David's faithful. You should be commending David instead of coming against him. A lot of courage. Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or do anything in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. Ahimelech says, I didn't know of this. This isn't what David told me. David said he was going on a secret mission for you. I didn't inquire of God. I gave him some bread. I gave him a sword. And the king said to him, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's household. What we're going to see next is one of the most graphic things in scripture. It's horrific what Saul does to these priests and does to their families. And I want to remind you that God told the children of Israel, don't have a king. It's not going to be a good experience. It's not my will. It's not my intent. I want to raise up spiritual leaders for you. But ultimately, God wanted to be the king of Israel. Wanted it to be a theocracy where they were ruled, ruled by God. I was asking this question to myself this week. Is what is the point of the period of the kings in scripture? Because it's a big part of scripture. Not just Saul, but all of the kings of Israel. And you could say with confidence that the kings were absolute failures. There's a few good kings, but most of them completely rejected God at some point in their life. And I think it's God making a statement. He's saying, I don't want men to rule your lives. I want to rule your life. I want to be your Lord. I want to be your king. And it's so easy for us to look to people instead of God. Say, I'm going to put a person in that place. I want someone that I can see. And God's saying, the only one that is really fit to lead your life is me, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Amen? So we see the absolute failure of Saul here in the next few verses. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. The guards are like, not on your life. We're not going to do this. We're not going to kill the priests. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Saul wouldn't do it himself. He wouldn't pick up his sword and kill these priests but he would order others to do it. And Doag is such a base man that he was willing to now take his sword and kill 85 of these priests. It continues. Also Nob, the city of the priests, this is where all the priests lived together, three miles north of Jerusalem. He struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen, donkey and sheep with the edge of the sword. Doag goes into Nob and destroys the whole city, women and children, nursing infants. And he goes, Saul, how could you get to this place? Anger and violence and sin multiplies in his life. 
starts with David. Then he tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. Now he kills 85 priests and their families. The weight of this on David, we'll see in these next few verses. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I've caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. What a sobering moment. David's lies had the repercussions of great loss of life. David says, I've caused this. I've done this. There's times in scripture that God will deal with sin in a radical way to prove a point, to show us how destructive sin is. We find that in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira. The church is exploding, it's growing, it's exciting. Ananias and Sapphira bring in an offering saying, we sold some land and we're giving all of the money to God, where they had kept a portion of the money for themselves, which was no problem. God had never said that they needed to give all of the proceeds from the land to God's work. What was the sin there? They were lying to the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us. And they were trying to appear more spiritual than they really were. They wanted people to think, oh, they're so giving, they're so benevolent. How many times do we try to be more spiritual than we really are? All the time, don't we? Someone asks us, well, did you read that book? Did you read the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great, great book. I love that book. One of my favorites really ministered to me. And the truth is, we have the book, we own the book, and we read the back cover. <laughs> and we liked the back cover, but that was the extent of it. We really don't want to say, oh, yeah, I didn't read the book. In fact, I'm not even really interested in reading the book. I have no intention of, of reading the book. And it's so subtle. But yet God wanted to prove a point saying, I just want you to be genuine. I don't want you to try to appear more spiritual than you really are. And I think God, in the same way here with the story of David, is showing us how destructive lying is, how it brings great damage. Why would God be against lying? In the Proverbs, there's a list of the things that God hates, and he lists lying twice. He emphasizes lying because it hurts his heart, and it hurts our relationship with people. And God wants us to be in close relationship with him and close relationship with others. And he knows that lying is gonna be counterintuitive to that. So, so David feels that. Even though David lied, is Saul justified in his genocide? Absolutely not, absolutely not. Saul should have never responded in killing people because of David's lies. We can't use other people's sin to justify sin in our own lives. Verse 23, stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. I think it's difficult for David to have Abathar in his midst, the son of Ahimelech, because every time he would see Abathar, he'd have to see the face of Ahimelech. He'd have to think about all the priests that were killed, all of the families that were killed. It is no understatement to say of these two chapters, it is a painful path to praise. What is it filled with? Lies, fear, acting like a madman, distress, discontentment, debt, dark isolation in a cave, murder, mass murder, genocide. 
And then we turn to the Psalms and we go, it's out of these experiences, David's own sin and the sin of others, that this powerful, beautiful praise came forth in his life. These Psalms that we love, these Psalms that we sing to the Lord. But I've got to tell you that when there's lies, when there's fear, when there's caves, when there's sin, it doesn't always lead to praise. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we make to stop, to reflect, to go deeper, not just on the outward and say, God, I really did sin this week, this month. The pressure was on. I didn't respond in the way that I want. God, would you be merciful to me? And God's there saying, I love you. I'm faithful when you're faithless. You're my son. You're my daughter. God, you still love me? Oh, I'm so thankful that you still love me in the midst of, of my own sin and my own, my own struggle. Because apart from pressing into the Lord, it's not going to lead to praise. We've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. Debt hasn't caused them to come to Christ in a greater way. So it's a choice that we make. I think if we were with David and he was sitting with us and he was talking to us about these songs that he wrote, about the season of his life, he would probably tell us, man, I was so depressed in the cave. I was questioning why God allowed this in my life. I couldn't believe that I lied and I acted like a madman. And I'll never forget the spit coming down from, from, from my beard. But you know what? I chose to look to the Lord. I chose to cry out to God. I chose to ask for, for God's mercy. It was a choice that I had to make, not based on my feelings, but based on who God is. David's a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect. He was a worshiper early in his life, and he continued as a worshiper even in seasons of failure. And that's true in our lives as well. You can be a man or woman after God's own heart, not based on a perfect life, but a heart that's given to God that worships the Lord in all seasons. So let's apply this message right now. Billy's gonna come out and he's gonna lead us in worship. And let's bless the Lord at all times. Enter into God's presence. Same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that David worshiped, we worship. You may be in the midst of blessings, praise the Lord. You may be in the midst of the cave, praise the Lord. You may be in the midst of your own failure, praise the Lord for his mercy. You may be in the midst of the failures of others. There's a Saul in your life. Praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we just ask in this moment that you would meet us, that you would meet us in the midst of our own failures, our own shortcomings, those things that we do that don't glorify you when the pressure's on in our lives, whether it's the pressure of finances or relationships or traffic or our own flesh, or would you meet us in those places? Would you be merciful to us? May we be like these 400 men that gather to you, Jesus, in the midst of the challenges of our life. God, we pray for those this morning that have not come to that place of realizing their need for your grace, for your forgiveness, for salvation. Would, would you bring salvation to them? Would you bring encouragement to those that are in the midst of a cave and feel so isolated and feel like no one's caring for their soul. God, would you care for their soul?